peace president bombs countries around the world. The drug war rages on. The Patriot Act exists. The Fed prints and prints and prints. Bailouts, mandates, regulations, they never seem to end. When government does not follow the rules given to it, what do you do about it? Do you march on Washington, D.C. to beg federal politicians to limit their own power? Do you go to federal court in the hope that federal judges will limit federal power? Do you vote the bums out in the hope that the new bums repeal power that's been handed to them? Well, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison both warned us that if the federal government ever became the sole and exclusive arbiter of the extent of its own powers, that power would always grow. Jefferson wrote, he said, a nullification of the act is the rightful remedy whenever, now every single time, the federal government violates the Constitution. Constitution of the United States, a set of rules to govern the government, ignored and trampled by both Democrats and Republicans for far too long. So, what do we do about it? We don't need no stinking permission to exercise our rights. From the Tenth Amendment Center, around the nation and into your ears, welcome Welcome to to TRS. There's a growing movement of people around the country. Ground zero for the Tenth Amendment movement. The answer to 1984 is... The Tenth Amendment Center. Tell us, what is it? It's about sticking to the Constitution. Almost five years ago, Tenth Amendment Center was started by some guy in his apartment. And in the last two years, we've built up an organization of 60 people in over half the states in the union without any kind of funding whatsoever. This is a movement of the people, and we've been so effective in the nullification movement that we're now under direct attack by the likes of Rachel Maddow and the establishment elite. The concept is called nullification or state sovereignty, the notion that states can opt out whenever the federal government tries to exert a power not enumerated in the Constitution. And as well as being a rabid proponent of slavery, John Calhoun, to that end, championed the cause of nullification. Nullification, the idea that states could and should refuse to follow federal laws they didn't like, that they thought went beyond the powers of the federal government. If you're a little rusty on the Constitution, here is what the Tenth Amendment says. Quote, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. The one little problem with the argument from the Tenthers, as they like to call it, is this other part of the Constitution that's called Article One. You know, Article One. Quote. The Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, to pay the debts, and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. That means it unambiguously authorizes Congress to spend money in ways that benefit the nation. You know, Social Security, Medicare, Veterans Care, etc., etc. 
So what are the tenthers really up to? The problem with those that are looking to the Tenth Amendment uh, for support is that uh, the Supreme Court really offers very little encouragement for these types of claims. A conservative group called the Tenth Amendment Center has been pushing a lot of the anti-health reform stuff, they, but, but they put that in the context of nullification, and they're pushing for other kinds of nullification, too. Uh, Ron, most people in their right-thinking mind know that the Tenth Amendment is a bunch of baloney. Since the election of a black president, dozens of states, primarily red states, have flirted with sovereignty. Some actually passing legislation declaring sovereignty on what they consider state issues. Your federal laws don't apply here, Yankees. United States, schmunited states. So there are a few core beliefs that drive me in what I do with the Tenth Amendment Center. And they're very, very simple. Rights are not granted to us by government. They are ours by the nature of our birth, of being human. We, the people of the several states, we created the federal government and not the other way around. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He said among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He did not list all of our rights. He just said among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it. Because that's the two principles that we need to make the Constitution make sense. Governments are only instituted to protect our rights, and they can only operate to protect our rights if and only if they have the consent of the people to do it. Government doesn't give us our rights. It's there to protect it. And we, the people, uh, delegate to government at all levels, whether it be local government or state government or the federal government, uh, those powers that we deem necessary. All just political authority anywhere comes from we the people. And government exists solely with our consent. Federalism is the idea that power is dispersed among various bodies in society. And in the case of the U.S., it means that you have a central government that acts as supposed to act anyway as the agent of the state, so it's granted a few enumerated powers and the remainder of the powers are exercised by the states or the people. In the American system, no government is conceived of as being sovereign. And by sovereign, I mean having ultimate decision-making power. We sometimes talk about state sovereignty, but that's just shorthand for the sovereignty of the peoples of the states. No government is sovereign. That's the old world European model that Americans fled from. It's the peoples of the states who are sovereign. And in their sovereign capacity, they apportion powers between the state governments and the federal government. And in so doing, they don't give up their sovereignty. They are merely exercising their sovereignty. They remain, or they retain ultimate decision-making power. The amazing thing is that I think people forget that that puts the federal government at the bottom of the ladder. I mean, the individual gave authority and responsibility to the state government, 
which then gave responsibility to the federal government. So it's been flipped. So these elected employees have been charged with certain enumerated chores, responsibilities, and you see people kicking back now because they've neglected to carry out that work. They haven't done the job that they've been hired to do. So if the agent that they themselves created, namely the federal government, should go beyond the powers granted to it by the sovereign peoples of the states, then the very logic of the system demands that the sovereign peoples of the states, by virtue of being sovereign, have to have a last resort mechanism for intervening when their own system perverts its instrument, namely the Constitution. The Tenth Amendment defines the entire scope of federal power as that which we, the people of the several states, gave to it in the Constitution, and nothing more. The Tenth Amendment was sort of taken to be implicit in the Constitution even before it was included with the Bill of Rights, and it simply means that the federal government has only the powers that are delegated to it, and the states and the people retain the remainder. And if you look at the state ratifying conventions where the states decided whether or not to ratify the Constitution, there you see that one after the other they were being assured that even without the Tenth Amendment, the Constitution as drafted already implicitly contained this idea. I sued the federal government based on the Tenth Amendment and uh, probably uh, the only sheriff in history to ever sue the federal government as a standing sheriff and win a case at the U.S. Supreme Court. And it was all based on the Tenth Amendment, state sovereignty. And basically what our case proved is that the federal government is not our boss. Ninth and Tenth Amendment together give us a good guide to constitutional interpretation. Ninth Amendment says that you know, just because a right is listed in the Bill of Rights does not mean we don't also have other rights. You know, I want to make, sure, make clear that this is not some kind of a, a grant of rights. And the Bill of Rights just protects rights that already existed. But they thought that was the, was the most important because in, in their recent experience under the abuse of King and Parliament, they had had denial of jury trial, violation of property rights, warrantless searches, the writs of assistance, you know, without, without uh, probable cause being, being given to a judge. So they had experienced gun confiscation. All those things they experienced, the whole point of the Bill of Rights was to prevent that from happening again. And they didn't trust the, the, idea, the uh, arguments of the Federalists were that no Bill of Rights was necessary because the new Constitution, the new government created by the Constitution was so weak that it couldn't possibly trample on the rights of the people. That was Hamilton's argument. And the response to that was, we're not going to trust that you know, limited, enumerated uh, grant of power to be enough. We want to have extra guarantees. That's the point of the Bill of Rights. And Hamilton also argued that, well, if you enumerate certain rights, that will make it seem as though other rights are not retained. Another argument they gave against the Bill of Rights. That's why the Ninth Amendment is there. Say, just because we list these things, we think are really important, doesn't mean that other things don't exist, other rights. Our rights are as innumerable as the stars or as grains of sand on the beach. The, the states, with the Tenth Amendment, were, were supposed to balance out the onerous activities and laws of a federal government gone wild. And so the Tenth Amendment is very important in that regard to start to bring back the balance between the states and the federal government. In America, we've got a constitution, and the entire constitution is just completely saturated with these principles of state sovereignty. Article 1, Section 3, Article 1, Section 8, Article 2, Section 2, Article 4, Article 5, 
The Ninth Amendment, the Tenth Amendment, all this has to deal with state sovereignty. Making sure that the federal government stays extremely limited so that way we as individual citizens can have the most influence over local government so that way we can protect our rights. We don't have to rely on Washington, D.C. to protect our rights if they would just follow the Constitution. I Actually, I think of the Tenth Amendment now, it's a, it's a relic of our failure. And future historians will look back and they'll see all the things that contributed to the demise of American prosperity and they will say, but all they had to do was follow the Tenth Amendment. A government without limits is the definition of a tyranny. When it enacts laws or regulations or rules or mandates that are outside the scope of its constitutionally delegated powers, you are not bound to obey them. Jefferson said... An act of Congress which assumes power not delegated by the Constitution is not law, but it is altogether void and of no force. Even Alexander Hamilton, who never saw a big government program he didn't like, said in Federalist 78 that there is no position which depends on clearer principles than that every act of a delegated authority contrary to the tenor of the commission under which it is exercised is void. No legislative act, therefore, contrary to the Constitution, can be valid. To deny this would be to affirm that the deputy is greater than his principal, that the servant is above his master, that the representatives of the people are superior to the people themselves, that men, acting by virtue of powers, may not only do what their powers do not authorize, but what they forbid. He said, look, if they're not null and void, that means they can do whatever they want, even what they're forbidden to do. Thomas Jefferson once said, whenever all power is, whenever government is drawn to Washington, D.C. as the source of all power, it will completely defeat the purposes for which we separated in the first place. Guess what? We're there. Madison said the power of the federal government is enumerated. It can only operate in certain cases. It has legislative powers on defined and limited objects beyond which it cannot extend its jurisdiction. The federal government said Jefferson cannot have a monopoly on determining what its own powers are because we all know what it's going to do. It's going to suddenly determine that it has more and more and more and more and more powers. It's going to keep on discovering these vast, untapped reservoirs of power. We all know this. I mean, this this has happened. It's not like I'm talking theory up here. Just look around, look at the Constitution, then look at what we live under. This is what has happened. So it's not enough to say, well, gee, you know, it would be nice if they would listen to the Constitution, then the government would be more limited. Yes, it would be nice. A lot of things would be nice. But power has to counteract power. You can't expect the Tenth Amendment to enforce itself. The states have to assert themselves. That's the idea behind state nullification. But in any event, I want to give you a few words about the historic background of the idea of nullification. That is the idea that ultimately is for the states as the constituent entities in the federal union to ensure that their creature, the federal government, um, lives up to or abides by the limitations imposed on it by the Constitution. And the way to understand this, I think, goes back to the, uh, as most questions of constitutional politics ultimately do, it goes back to the very founding of the federal system by the state's separate ratifications of the Constitution. 
The argument over ratification was not between people who wanted or said they wanted different models of government, between people who said we want an unlimited central government on one hand and people who said, no, we want a limited one on the other hand. Rather, it was between people who said, this new constitution will create a limited central government, and people who said, well, we wish it would, but we don't think so. Well, in the Philadelphia Convention of 1787, the delegates had been charged, all of them, by their states and by the Congress before that, with proposing amendments to the Articles of Confederation. And yet, when the convention opened, the caucus of people who were really nationalists, not federalists, that is, who really wanted to change the model of government from a decentralized one to a centralized one, hurriedly proposed a set of resolutions that came to be called the Virginia Plan. Now, the Virginia Plan began by saying, in the words of Governor Edmund Randolph of Virginia, who was the fellow who made the resolutions in the Philadelphia Convention, that what was needed was a national government and not a federal government. Through the summer of 1787 in the convention, there was repeatedly uh, an impulse to return to this question of whether what was needed was a federal or a national government. And ultimately what happened was that despite the mythology that's built up around this Virginia plan that sees it as a kind of rough draft of the Constitution, the key elements of that plan that would have made the government national were rejected. Well, as we all know, the Constitution at the Philadelphia Convention ultimately presented to the Congress to be forwarded to the people for their ratification did not give Congress a general power to legislate, but instead, in Article 1, Section 8, enumerated a few things that the Congress would be able to do, the implication being, and this was universally understood, that whatever wasn't listed in the Constitution as a power of Congress was not a power of Congress. So the point is, we did have an attempt by some of the famous names, Madison, Hamilton, James Wilson, Governor Morris, other leading nationalist figures in the Philadelphia Convention to create a national government, but their attempt was defeated. And it wasn't defeated by accident. It was defeated by the considered opinion of the people who voted against these proposals over and over and over again. In 1787, 88, 89, 90, when the Constitution was being ratified by the original 13 states, Virginia was far and away the most important state. That is, of course, it had given the country a hugely disproportionate share of the political leaders, not to mention the chief military leader of the revolution. And in those days, Virginia also included not only today's Virginia, but also West Virginia and Kentucky. When the matter came before Virginia's ratification convention for decision, a lot of people in Virginia said, well, it doesn't even matter if, this was Patrick Henry's position, it doesn't matter if the other 12 states ratify this thing. If we hold out against it, they will have to amend it to suit us because Virginia's membership in the Union is essential to its success. Now, we don't have to agree with Henry to see that he had a point. Virginia was the only state in which the political elite was divided almost perfectly down the middle. So on one hand, you had, um, of course, Washington, Madison were in favor of ratification. But on the other hand, you had Henry and Mason and other prominent people who were opposed to ratification. Between the main two groups was Edmund Randolph. Randolph, the governor, had been the fellow who moved the Virginia plan in the Philadelphia Convention in the summer of 1787. And yet, despite taking the leading role there, he had, at the end of, 17, of the Philadelphia Convention, refused to sign the Constitution. He enumerated several objections he had to it, chief among which was that it did not carefully enough 
uh, delineate between the federal legislative authority and state legislative authority. Um, but ultimately, in the Richmond Ratification Convention, Randolph did two things. One is, he said, well, because eight states have already ratified, the question clearly is no longer, can we amend this thing before we agree to it? The question is simply, are we going to have a federal constitution? The only way we're going to do that, he thought, was to propose amendments after ratifying it. On the other hand, Randolph, besides coming down on the side of ratifying before amendment, also said, but the, the thing is, this isn't as dangerous as you, Patrick Henry, and other anti-federalists are warning us that it is. They were faced with a bunch of skeptics like Patrick Henry, who looked at the document and said, there are clauses here that they will be able to drive, I'd like to say a truck through, I guess that would be anachronistic, be able to gallop a horse through. <laughs> so what, what, what do we do about this? And what was he told? Patrick Henry was told something by the five-man commission whose job it was to write the ratification instrument, that is the document by which Virginia would ratify the Constitution. So these aren't just five bozos. These are arguably the five most important people at the convention. And they said to him, Edmund Randolph, a future attorney general, said, oh, don't worry about it. This federal government is going to have only the powers expressly delegated to it. He used the word expressly. This is a limited government. George Nicholas, who became the first attorney general of Kentucky, who also served on this five-man commission, said, oh, and by the way, if the federal government should try to reach for any supplementary condition, those were his words, to impose upon us, we will be in Virginia exonerated from that additional power because we never agreed to it. We're only agreeing to the powers in Article 1, Section 8. Well, there's nullification pretty much in germ right there. In 1797, a grand jury in Richmond indicted a Virginia congressman uh, named Cabell for seditious libel. Seditious libel had been a common law offense in England and in colonial North America. It was the crime of saying something that tended to bring the government into ill repute. Thomas Jefferson, who in 1797 uh, was the vice president of the United States, said that he thought that the members of this federal grand jury in Richmond should be indicted for treason against Virginia. So he thought that a Virginia state court should indict these people for treason in trying to prevent uh, Congressman Cabell from freely uh, disseminating his opinions among his constituents. And actually what Cabell had done was to criticize John Adams' foreign policy in what nowadays is called congressional junk mail, but in those days was called circular a circular letter. He had sent it out to all his constituents, and then Federalists had gotten wind of it and indicted him for, for seditious libel. Well, having had a trial run at this, uh, in 1798, the Federalists in control of Congress decided that why not have just a statute saying that it would be a crime to say anything that tended to bring the government into ill repute. And so what we end up with then is what's called the Sedition Act Crisis. In 1798, on Bastille Day, July 14th, John Adams signed the Alien and Sedition Acts into effect. And these laws made it a crime to say anything that tended to bring the federal government into ill repute. In fact, the only significant federal official whom you were still allowed to bring into ill repute was the Vice President, Thomas Jefferson. I'm not kidding. He was exempted from coverage by this law, drafted by his Federalist opponents in Congress. You, you were not allowed to say anything that made the President look bad. You were not allowed to say anything. We'll get back to what looked bad in a minute. In a minute. Uh, you weren't allowed to say anything that made anybody else in the cabinet look bad. You weren't allowed to say anything that made the courts, the Congress, 
the federal government generally look bad. And what did it mean to make them look bad, bring them into ill repute? Well, one fellow had the temerity to say on hobbling out of a, a drinking establishment one evening that he wished a cannonball would hold, hit old Adams in his big fat arse. <laughs> it's pretty widely, maybe that's the wrong word. Uh, it's pretty generally conceded that Adams didn't dig have a big fat arse. Um, but the fellow's wish that a cannonball would hit it seems to me to be rather, shall we say, uh, rhetorical. In any event, what happened was that the fellow was imprisoned. He was imprisoned for saying something that tended to bring the president into ill repute. After this law was adopted, the Republicans faced a real crisis. The question is, what can we do? If we can't have an election and criticize the incumbents, what kind of election can we have? And the answer the Republicans came to was, well, we can't have a free election if we can't criticize incumbents. So this seemed to people like Thomas Jefferson and James Madison a real crisis. It, it was possible that if the Sedition Act were vigorously enforced, it would mean the end of Republican government in the United States. The Sedition Act was energetically enforced. This is not a kind of theoretical bugbear thrown out by liberal professors. What happened was that over 20 prominent Republicans were indicted, uh, over a dozen of them were tried, and several people were imprisoned, including prominent newspaper men, and even a congressman was imprisoned were saying negative things about President Adams' foreign policy. So what happened was that Jefferson and Madison, Jefferson for Kentucky, Madison for Virginia, drafted what have come to be called the Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions of 1798. And they did not invent a new idea of the Constitution. They did not invent a new idea of state sovereignty. What they did instead was to draw on the explanation of the Constitution that had been given by Edmund Randolph and George Nicholas in the Virginia Ratification Convention of 1788. The Virginia and Kentucky Resolutions of 1798 are some of the great forgotten documents of U.S. history. They were written by James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, respectively, and they spelled out what cumulatively we know as the doctrine of nullification. Madison in the Virginia uh, Resolutions and Jefferson in the Kentucky Resolutions were looking to consider what to do when the federal government violates the Constitution. And Jefferson even used the word nullification in his draft of the Kentucky Resolutions, and then they appeared the next year in the 1799 Kentucky Resolutions. Basically, they're saying this is a limited government, has only the powers granted to it, and so if it exercises a power that wasn't granted, then the states should refuse to enforce it. And then in 1800, Madison followed up with the famous report of 1800, in which he said that ultimately in the last resort, even when all the courts have heard whatever the case is and everything has already been accomplished in that way, there are still cases where you know the, the courts might also betray us. So what can be done in a case like that? And, and Madison said, the parties to the Constitution, by which he means the states, have to be able to intervene at that point and say, wait a minute, we created this thing in the first place, so we know firsthand it was not intended to have this power, so in the last resort we are intervening to stop it. In the Virginia Resolutions, we learn that when the federal government goes beyond its constitutional powers, that the states are duty-bound to resist 
Now, notice he didn't say, well, you might consider resisting, or maybe you could flip a coin, and, you know, if it comes up heads, you would resist. The states are duty-bound to resist. Thomas Jefferson, who drafted the Kentucky Resolutions of 1798, in his initial draft, as well as in the follow-up resolutions of 1799, said that a nullification is the rightful remedy in a situation like this. So Jefferson came up with that word. It wasn't me. It wasn't any of us. It was Thomas Jefferson. So if our media and political overlords would like to take this up with Thomas Jefferson, they're absolutely free to. But if it boils down to Keith Olbermann versus Thomas Jefferson and me, I think I like those odds. In 1800, Virginia issued a report, sometimes known as Madison's Report, following up on the Virginia Resolutions of 1798. And in those follow-up resolutions, Madison clarified that we need a remedy for when even the judicial branch betrays us. So it's not enough to say, oh, the courts will put things right. That's not what Madison thought. We need a remedy for when the courts betray us. The courts are not composed of infallible human beings. Because there's no such thing. In fact, think about Thomas Jefferson's attitude toward the federal courts. His argument was the federal courts are part of the problem. You want me to go and refer my disputes to them? They're part of the problem. The problem is the federal government. And last I checked, the federal courts are part of the federal government. They can't possibly be impartial arbiters. Let's suppose you and I had a dispute. I know this would never happen, but let's suppose we did. And then I said to you, I have just the person to adjudicate this dispute. How about my mother? (laughs) Now, look, my mother, you know, she's still alive. And I want to say in her honor and and, and, uh, with respect to her, she's a very fair minded person. She might side with the other guy. I wouldn't bet on it, though. I mean, you know, we have known each other a long time. So in other words, this is clear, right? You don't. When two parties are having a dispute, you don't let one of the parties of the dispute render the decision. And so the idea of state nullification, that the states form the federal government in the first place, they are the principles. The federal government is merely their agent. The employee does not tell the employer what to do. Try doing that, by the way. See what happens. That is not how it is supposed to work. Another thing about the federal courts, by the way, the Jeffersonian view was that they're probably just going to rubber stamp what the federal government is doing. Well, how many times can one guy be a prophet? You know, like a zillion? I mean, of course he's right. That's exactly what they do. What do the federal courts spend most of their time doing these days? Going after the states. Because apparently they're all finished going over the constitutionality of federal laws. They've done all that. So they've got a lot of spare time and they're going to... I mean, you would think that would keep them busy enough, but no, on to the states. But what it all boils down to is this. The federal government will not and should not be expected to limit itself. That ain't going to happen. You do not establish an institution like this, then hand it a piece of paper and say, go limit yourself. What possible incentive does this institution have to limit itself? So, we, you know, it's enough, it's enough to dangle... We've tried dangling carrots in front of it. It's time for the stick, I say. Because... If it is going to be limited, if that's even possible, obviously something outside itself has to do the limiting. Just common sense. Well, according to Jefferson, the logical candidate for that role 
would be the states. That is their role. As the principles to the compact, they determine when the compact has been broken. Well, anytime you talk about the states or nullification, you can be assured that somebody is going to assume you have bad motives. And, you know, I'm not frankly convinced that people who make this argument actually believe it. I think what they're trying to do is demonize people who have dissident views by making them seem odious and contemptible and hateful. What is remarkable 150 years after the start of the Civil War is how right now, now, so many of the hallmarks of the Civil War and of the Confederacy are in political fashion again. Nullification, which helps steer South Carolina into its militant anti-U.S. stance. Nullification is now enjoying a remarkable renaissance. I would just urge that we look to history and, and find what was nullification used for. Well, it was, was it used to oppress minorities when it was introduced? No, it was used to fight for free speech and free trade and uh, against unconstitutional searches and seizures, against military conscription, against the fugitive slave laws. And moreover, what has been the most lethal institution in history for minorities, if not the centralized modern government. I mean, it's modern state structure. I mean, you know, ask the Armenians in Turkey, or ask the Jews in Germany, or the Ukrainians in Russia, or the Asians in Uganda. I mean, the list just goes on and on of how large centralized states have oppressed people. States at any level can oppress people. They're states. But the more centralized it is, the easier it is for the powers that be to carry out these, uh, these homicidal sorts of, of programs. And let's also remember, in U.S. history, I mean, the incarceration of the Japanese in the early 1940s, that wasn't a state program, that was a federal government program. The war on drugs, which has decimated minority communities, is that a state-level program? It's a federal program. But no progressive thinks this way, even though if they really believe in the human rights that they claim to stand for, they would say, let's nullify policies like that. Nothing could be further from the truth than to say nullification was used to defend slavery. It was used to fight against slavery, and in fact, what in the world would the southern states have needed to nullify regarding slavery? Federal law was perfectly friendly to slavery. What would they have needed to nullify? The, the, the argument doesn't even make sense. I, mean, I know, again, I hate to break this to you, but Rachel Maddow is making an argument that does not make sense, so brace yourselves. Or well, isn't this some kind of neo-Confederate doctrine? So we, oh, no, that, that, must, that means evil and, and all that. But in fact, what's interesting about the principles of 98 is that they're not a Southern doctrine and they're not a Northern doctrine. They're an American doctrine. And another point of this book is to dig up history that, again, is long forgotten, showing how northern states engaged in this process. And in fact, it was the Confederate president, future Confederate president, Jefferson Davis, when he gave his farewell speech to the U.S. Senate, he condemned nullification. South Carolina, when it seceded December 20th, 1860, one of their grievances was we're sick and tired of the North nullifying. In fact, if you look at history, you will find that the people that were supporting the idea of nullification, the people that were pushing the idea of states' rights, were the northern abolitionists because they didn't feel like that the federal government should be able to force them to be slave catchers and force them to send people back south who are looking for their freedom. And if you look at the, the list of causes that South Carolina published before they seceded, one of those things was that those pesky northern states were nullifying the fugitive slave laws. Nullification is not about slavery. Nullification is about freedom.
What I would like to do with the few minutes I have with you today is to, to share a story. And it's really a privilege for me to be able to share this story because I have the opportunity to give a man a voice who really never had a voice. We don't know a whole lot about the first 36 years of Joshua's life. In fact, we don't even know Joshua's last name. Because you see, slaves were not given last names. You know, to give somebody a last name is, is, is to humanize them. And there was no way that the institution of slavery could have survived as long as it did had people been able to humanize these black people that they were putting in bondage. So all we know that his name was Joshua. We don't know who his parents were. We don't know who his siblings were. We, we know virtually nothing about him until New Year's Day in 1850. We know exactly where he was on that morning, way back east in St. Louis, because that was the day that Joshua was sold. The slaves were brought out, and keep in mind that this was New Year's Day, so it's January in St. Louis. They were brought outside into the square, and they were stripped naked. They were inspected. Well, Joshua was sold that day. He was sold to a man named Benemy Garland Stone, who owned a, a large farm about four miles outside of St. Louis. And that's where Joshua spent the next two years of his life, as a field hand and a servant. But somewhere along the line, Joshua began to entertain thoughts of freedom. He couldn't help but know that freedom was merely a rock throw across the Mississippi River away. And so he started to contemplate freedom. For him to, to take off, he had to not only consider that he was risking his very life, he was leaving everything that he knew, his friends, his lifestyle, how would he support himself, what was he going to do. And yet the call of freedom was strong enough in him that on one night in March, he climbed on a barge in the river, and that barge was taken across over to the Illinois shore. And for the first time in his life, he stepped off of that boat onto free soil as a free man. And he walked all the way to a town in Wisconsin called Racine. But he was not yet under the thumb of tyranny. Because you see, as we've mentioned before, there was these fugitive slave laws. And basically the fugitive slave laws demanded that if anybody knew that there was a, a fugitive slave in the area, they were, they were obligated to report them and make sure that they got sent back to their rightful owner. And the rightful owner had the right to come into a northern state and locate his quote-unquote property and haul it back. And basically it was just his word, yeah, I own this guy. So Joshua, who now had taken on a last name, Glover, Joshua Glover, had to live under the fear that at any time he could be drugged back. And a couple of years later, his worst fears came to reality. Ironically, it was another freed slave named Nelson Turner that valued money more than freedom that facilitated his capture. And the way it happened is that Nelson Turner came over to Joshua's little hut one night. He brought a deck of cards and a, and a bottle of whiskey. And they were hanging out and they were drinking a little bit. When all of a sudden, there was a banging on the door. The door flew open. And in crash Garland, a U.S. Marshal, his last name is Stone. Joshua tried to grab for the gun that was in Garland's hand. 
But the marshal had a set of handcuffs, and he bashed him over the head with them. And then he was hit with the butt of a whip, and he fell to the floor, bleeding. He was cuffed, and he was drug off. He was thrown in jail. Well, the people of Wisconsin weren't real thrilled with the idea that somebody could just come along and kidnap a man that was free in their state. And they immediately began to take steps for his freedom. They busted this man out of jail. About 5,000 people ended up gathering in front of the jail in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You can imagine the AP report now. You know, probably went something like, several people gathered in front of the jail. <laughs> it was 5,000 people. One guy actually grabbed a board. People were screaming, get us a key, get us a key so we can get this guy out. This one guy, he grabbed this board, and he said, this will work as a key. And he busted down the door, and they drug him out to freedom. There was a guy named John Merchant. He was the first person who put him in his wagon and took him to the first safe house. John Merchant was actually known as a Democrat, which were the uh, people that were typically pro-slavery. But for whatever reason, he saw the humanity in this man. He said, yes, I will take him and I will get him to his freedom. And it brought him to seven different houses with seven different people who were willing to risk their lives, defying the federal government, to get this guy to freedom. Eventually, Joshua made it to Canada, where he spent the rest of his life. He ended up getting married, and he died a free man. But he only got his freedom because these people like John Merchant, this, this newspaper editor named Sherman Booth, who was kind of the one who instigated the crowd, were willing to stand up and say, no, this is not acceptable. We are not going to allow this man's freedom to be violated. Without those people, Joshua would have been drugged back to St. Louis and maybe even sold farther south, maybe even killed. Sherman Booth in particular, who was the newspaper editor, he spent the next seven years wrangling with the federal government because they charged him with violation of fugitive slave laws. And they threw him in jail. And he lost his presses and he lost his business. And you know what? You know who stood behind him? The state of Wisconsin. The Supreme Court of Wisconsin made it very difficult for the Supreme Court of the United States to prosecute him. They wouldn't turn over the papers. They said, you have no authority. This is the state of Wisconsin. We don't accept this. It takes people standing up for freedom for us to have freedom. We have a duty. If we're going to claim liberty, then we have a duty to protect liberty for everybody. I wonder how many of you have something like this on, the, on your house at home. I don't know if you can see it, but it's a, it's a chain lock. But you may not have a chain lock. You may have a deadbolt or a, 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 just a lock on your doorknob. Well, you know, it's interesting. When I was reading the accounts of, of Glover, and he was talking about when he first came to Wisconsin, and he first got that little, little house. It was a one-room shack. He was able to walk inside and lock his door behind him. And, you know, we take that for granted. But to be able to lock out the world is liberty. When we have the right to have a lock on our door, that is freedom. It took a lot of people standing behind Joshua Glover. It took the state of Wisconsin to form into an environment where they said no. In order for Joshua to have the privilege of being able to lock his door. Frederick Douglass wrote, Find out just what any people will quietly submit to. 
And you have the exact measure of the injustice and wrong which will be imposed upon them. It is up to us to stand up when liberty is threatened and say no, or else tyranny will be imposed upon us. Let's not let that happen. You know, when the New York Times reports on our work here at the 10th Amendment Center, they call and ask us questions. The Associated Press does the same. So does Bloomberg, Fox News, CNN, even the Huffington Post. When they write an article, they call us. But the Southern Poverty Law Center, nah. They even go in person to our event like they did at Nullify Now Jacksonville back on the 22nd. And they give us what they call a report on far-right extremism without asking a single question of any of us, the organizers. Well, Southern Poverty Law Center is an organization that got its start uh, going after the KKK and neo-Nazis. But unfortunately, what they've done is they started using that, that whatever clout they had, whatever legitimacy they had, after chasing Nazis to start going after anyone they consider to be you know, right-wing, including libertarians, constitutionalists, just, just you know, Barry Goldwater-style Republicans, Ron Paul supporters, you name it. They started trying to demonize and smear and using conflation, which means simply lumping all of us in with neo-Nazis and skinheads. And I find it offensive that Potok likes to lump us in with white supremacists. And so, so to insinuate that I'm in bed with white supremacists and neo-Nazis, which he has, lumping us all together oh, is offensive. Oh, that's ridiculous. Oh, I haven't your suggested article, that you're connected yes, remotely you have. to white supremacists. You said we're coalescing. We're all coalescing and how is together. That, Mr. Rhodes? You love us how all in the same that? bucket. How is that that we've suggested that you're a white you supremacist? Include, you That's ridiculous. Us. You know we haven't said that. Yes, yes you have. You, you Look, put us the in the same bucket. The line about the Oath Keepers is that this is a group of men and women who are in largely in law enforcement. They are given weapons and they are given authority over the rest of us, and that is well and fine. I'm all about reaffirming uh, oaths to the Constitution. It's a great document, as is the Bill of Rights. However, when people with those powers are animated uh, by dark and utterly false conspiracy theories. They actually mention uh, in this section on the orders they won't obey that they fear that uh, the government will be cracking down on militias and calling them uh, right-wing terrorists and so on. Which so, you do you know, That's the, the real agenda here. They're driven by fears that are irrational and have no basis in reality. This is unfortunately not, not confined to Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, a lot of the left media does the same exact thing. Newsweek did a piece on, on me where they talk about me, then they'll talk about some skinhead, then they'll talk about me, and they'll talk about Timothy McVeigh. So that's just their smear tactic. Instead of addressing what I'm doing head on and criticizing what I'm actually doing, they try to do the guilt by association thing. It's, a, it's the same thing they try to do the entire Tea Party movement also, you know, to insinuate that, that the Tea Party movement is motivated by racial animus. It's just absurdity. And so we have this problem of thought controllers in our society who use demonizing, toxifying words like extremism, or they introduce slavery to scare people away when it has, not only does it have zero to do with nullification, it's exactly the opposite. What does it mean when they call us extremists? Well, you notice what they don't use the word extremism for. They don't use it to describe what the federal government does. You never hear the thought controllers, and when I say thought controllers, I'm thinking about, you know, the MSNBCs, even the Fox Newses sometimes. Uh, I'm thinking about Media Matters, you know, this left-wing media watchdog group that monitors all television to make sure nobody utters an unapproved thought. Uh, I'm thinking about the, the misnamed website Think Progress. But notice that it is not 
considered to be extremism when the TSA is sticking its hands down our pants. Nothing extreme about that. That's just public policy, citizen. Shut your mouth. So that's not extremism. By definition, it's not. Or how about the fact that our entitlement programs are underfunded by an amount more than double the GDP of the entire world? You and I didn't do that. That wasn't our policy. That's the mainstream. That's the non-extreme people. No, you and I are the extreme ones. I want to show you the video that got the most votes of all the video questions submitted to YouTube. And this one comes, as you can see, from Brandy and Michael in Spencer, Indiana. There's growing concern among Americans about the size and the scope of the federal government and its infringement upon state and individual rights. If you're elected president, how do you plan to restore the Tenth Amendment, hold the federal government only to those enumerated powers in the Constitution, and allow states to govern themselves? Congressman, what's your answer for Brandy and Michael? Well, obviously it would take more than one individual, but the responsibility of the president would be to veto every single bill that violates the Tenth Amendment. That would be the solution. We elect the government. It works for us. How did it get so removed, so unbridled, so arrogant that it can tell us how to live our personal lives? Many of you have asked, what can we do now about the loss of freedom? We could persuade the state governments to defy the feds in areas like health care, where the Constitution gives the federal government zero authority, and to nullify, to nullify all the laws the Congress has written that are not based on the Constitution. Today, the government, federal government is very big and the states are very little, and it is a consequence of our carelessness with the Constitution. Our Congresses, our uh, courts, as well as the executive branch have taken over too much of the uh, power. Now it falls upon the states because they are suffering the, the consequences, and the states have this responsibility to do something about it. But one thing, one issue that I think that we have to revisit, because the founders understood it, but we have forgotten about it, and that is the principle of nullification. If the federal government won't respond, and I would if I can, I would respond in, in a favorable way of reinstituting the principle of nullification. The states have to be able to nullify this. This would reverse the trend, and this would stop the usurpation of all the powers and privileges from the states to the federal government. Thank you very much, Congressman Ron Paul. I think we've gotten to that tipping point. I think that uh, the sleeping giant has awoken. Uh, I think the people across this country are waking up. I mean, you could have asked me five years ago when I was serving in the Missouri House, is this on anybody's radar screen? And I would have said no. And I think that we, we have gotten to a point, probably within this, uh, this last administration, and quite frankly, under the Bush administration, we had an expansion of government. And, uh, you know, it is just spiraled out of control uh, under the Obama administration. And the people are saying enough is enough. And I think that the more that these concepts are, are talked about, uh, this doctrine of nullification, this idea of limited government, uh, talking about Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution, and that there are actually enumerated or listed powers that, the, that's been, that have been delegated to the federal government, People are starting to learn our history. I would contend that we have been a nation with collective amnesia. 
uh, we have forgotten who we are and where we've come from, and that's changing. Nullification is a legislative effort. It's an effort to codify into law that a state views an action taken by the federal government as unconstitutional and writes into the state law that that federal action will be null and void in, in that particular state, will not have any effect in the state, will not be implemented in the state, and generally uh, would specify that any effort to implement that federal action would result in some sort of fine or penalty or imprisonment of the federal agents who were trying to uh, work outside of the bounds of the U.S. Constitution. So an executive, a governor in a state, could say, for example, to their state troopers or to their highway patrol that we've had this order come down from the U.S. Department of Transportation, but it's unconstitutional, and we don't want the state troopers in Texas enforcing or policing that federal policy. Uh, there's lots of opportunities for governors, as you would imagine then, to, to use the executive branch of the state to say we're not going to be complicit in helping the federal government violate the U.S. Constitution. And it has a lot of progress right now. People are really waking up to this idea. There are 15 states that are defying Congress and the Supreme Court on medical marijuana. They say that we can't have a plant in our backyard and grow it and consume it. Well, we're doing it anyways. The reality is the Constitution delegates certain things to the federal government. So if California wants to make marijuana legal, they, they, they can. I mean, you don't have to agree with it. The, the point is, is they did this, and of course the federal government, it doesn't even matter if it's a more progressive or a liberal view. Obviously, legalizing medical marijuana is not a conservative talking point. Well, the federal government didn't even like that. They do not like challenges to their authority, so they still pressed, and they said, no, supremacy clause, commerce clause, we can control you because we say so, and you've been allowing it for too long. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and in another famous case, giving the Pelosi's and the Reeds and the rest of them the power that they have today, Gonzalez versus Raich. The Supreme Court said that a plant grown in your backyard and consumed in your backyard was somehow engaging in interstate commerce. And so they could tell you what to do. They could put you in jail if they want. They could fine you. They could destroy your property. So it doesn't matter if it's wheat or if it's corn or if it's radishes or if it's weed. And incidentally, when that case went before the Supreme Court, it was three of the most conservative states in the union that stood with, with uh, Angel Rach on that issue. It was Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. And now, you know, listen, I wouldn't want to be caught with a joint in Alabama, <laughs> okay? But their argument was, yeah, we don't like California's law, but that's what a federal system is, you know? It, it's not some kind of nationalist nightmare where there's one policy and we're just going to shove it down your throats. No, it's live and let live. Well, Clarence Thomas, he had an amazing quote on this. He said, basically, if the federal government can regulate or control the growth of six plants in someone's backyards as interstate commerce. Their power is limitless. So whether it's guns or rummage sales or uh, cookie fests at your local church, they're going to claim the power to do anything and no government can be trusted with this power. Obviously, this is a paraphrase. I don't think he mentioned anything about cookies. But the reality is correct. Clarence Thomas, this was the dissenting opinion. He said, this is bad news, guys. Watch out for it. 
So the quick lesson that I want to give out of this um, marijuana story is this. In 2005, when the federal government said, oh, all state marijuana laws are unconstitutional, we don't recognize them under the Supremacy Clause, the Commerce Clause, the General Welfare Clause, whatever they want to lie about. At that time, there were 10 states who had those laws. Do you know how many have been repealed since the Supreme Court said they were unconstitutional? Zero. And since then, another four states have added on. I'm not trying to sell you guys on passing a medical marijuana law in Texas. I'm trying to give the lesson. This is the blueprint. The Supreme Court may have their opinion on Obamacare, but let them come and enforce it. The Tenth Amendment Center also authors legislation. We have a Federal Health Care Nullification Act to reject not just Obamacare mandates, but the entire idea that the federal government should be involved in health care at all. Nullification is what Republican legislators in states all across the country have been screaming in the face of the new health reform law passed by Democrats in Congress last year. Just within the last two months, Republicans in Idaho and in Montana moved through their own nullification legislation. It's not just anti-federal health reform legislation. It's legislation that says that federal law doesn't apply here in our state. One of the biggest issues at stake tomorrow is in Ohio, where voters go to the polls to decide on an amendment to the Ohio State Constitution that would effectively block any implementation of the president's health care overhaul. Here to discuss is Tea Party leader Chris Littleton, who's spearheading this effort. Chris, it's a pleasure. Welcome to Freedom Watch. Judge, great. Thanks All so right. Much. So uh, there's a, a proposal on the uh, ballot tomorrow in Ohio, which, if enacted, by a majority of the voters would make it the fundamental law of the land in Ohio that no government, state or federal, could require you to purchase health care or purchase anything else that you didn't want to purchase. What happens if that passes? Yeah, I guess the, the genesis for the idea for doing something that was, you know, a citizen's initiative to address the, the federal health care mandate was basically... You know, we were all very frustrated what was happening in D.C., and this was February of 2010. And uh, we all met. There was a group of about five, seven of us met in Cincinnati and started talking about the, this just over dinner. We'd, we'd never done a citizen's initiative before, so certainly we didn't know what it, everything that it would take in terms of infrastructure and time and commitment. But we knew that something had to be done. We drew from the existing um, the Liberty Grassroots Network that was already out there to take certain leaders, and they said, I'll be a county coordinator specific to this effort, um, or I have key volunteers who, who would jump out there. So when it was all said and done, it was about 4,100 people who actually gathered at least one signature. So the volunteer effort itself gathered about 441,000 signatures, and it makes it the largest volunteer signature gathering effort in Ohio's history. These were individuals who went out with their own time, their own blood, sweat, and tears, just sacrificing nights and weekends. They're going to work during the week, taking care of kids, doing all their regular obligations, and then they're going out in the evenings and weekends and just doing this because they personally feel that liberty was, I mean, it was at risk. I mean, in the most personal of ways. I mean, just our basic health care decisions, it's, it seems so 
elementary in a way, I guess. All right. Let me let me make both arguments. The federal government will say, hey, wait a minute. There's something in the Constitution called the Supremacy Clause. And it basically <laughs> says that all laws written by the Congress uh, are the supreme law of the land and anything in the states mm-hmm. to the contrary has to fall. Your argument would be, yes, but that only pertains to to areas of behavior in the Constitution given to the Congress to regulate. Guess what? For 230 years, the <laughs> states have been regulating health care and not the Congress. Is that the way it's going to go? We're not challenging the Supremacy Clause necessarily. What we are challenging, certainly, is that the constitutionality of the individual mandate is not there. This right. should have never gotten to this point. And we're saying, listen, you can't remove, you have to have, you have to go through a due process right. in order to take liberty and right. property Chris, from is, us. It's completely how, how does it look? Is there any organized opposition to it or are most of the people in Ohio saying it's time for us to take a stand against Obamacare and this is the way and this is the time and this is the place to do it? The polling looks good. There's a slight opposition, but not a ton. Uh, the polling certainly falls on our side, though it's not a sure thing. Um, so we appreciate any support that people may have on this issue. Um, with that said, you know, the, the, the most recent public polling from public policy polling showed us up 55 to 26. Right. More interesting than that, in every single political party, Republican, Democrat, Independents, people said, you know what, we don't like this thing. And even amongst people who supported Obama and considered themselves, quote unquote, liberal, they say that this is absolutely inappropriate as well. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Jeff Longstreth. I'm very honored to have been uh, the campaign manager for Issue 3. Um, but I have the microphone, so I'm going to go ahead and say this. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we won. One single state representative. I mean, this is this is the example of how individual people can actually create a movement. They can do something. There is hope for us, not the Obama-style hope, or whoever the next guy is going to be, but real hope for freedom and liberty in the Constitution. But in 2007, one single state representative in Maine said, well, this uh, Real ID Act uh, that we got in 2005, well, this is not authorized by the Constitution. We uh, can deal with this under the Tenth Amendment in our own state, and we will not comply with your law. And what has happened since then, we've had 25 states defy the federal government on the Real ID Act. They've said no to it. That law is virtually null and void in almost the entire country. In Arizona, the state Senate there approved a bill exempting products from interstate commerce laws if they are made and used within Arizona. West Virginia attempting to do something similar, nullifying federal regulations on guns, as long as those guns are made and used within West Virginia. In 2009, a single state representative in Montana introduced what's known as a Firearms Freedom Act to nullify some federal gun laws and regulations. Eight states have already passed Firearms Freedom Acts. Eight states have said, we are not going to uh, allow federal gun laws and regulations under your perverse reading of the Commerce Clause, because that's what they claim everything is commerce. And any government that can claim anything is commerce, regulating anything that moves is not to be trusted. Kentucky trying to nullify federal laws regarding environmental safety. They are trying to proclaim themselves a sanctuary from the Environmental Protection Agency. And another thing that Scalia reemphasized in the Mac Prince case was that the states are sovereign. And that means we don't answer to a higher authority. 
the states can run their own land, rivers, and uh, the EPA cannot come in here and start shoving us around like they own everything. They are not our boss, and they can't come in here and tell us what to do. When the EPA tells the Texas Committee on Environmental, Texas Commission on Environmental Quality that they are going to withdraw our air permitting authority, what should we be saying to the EPA? That's right. That's right. Our local law enforcement ought to be at the front gate of every one of those production facilities that is being threatened and telling those EPA officials that they can leave or they will be arrested. They have no authority in the state of Texas. We're saying in our own communities, in our own towns, in our own cities, in our own states, no, these laws should not apply to us and we will not allow them to apply to us. And the reality is, is when enough people say no to the federal government and enough states pass laws saying no to the federal government, the federal government is not going to be able to enforce their unconstitutional mandates on us. Well, I've been surprised that nullification has caught on to the extent it has today, given that there's been almost a total blackout in the media. When it has been mentioned, of course, it's to demonize it and use all the phony baloney arguments against it that, I mean, really, that any 12-year-old with an Internet connection can refute these arguments. And to the contrary, though, on the other side, the the so-called conservatives, most of them have ignored it, just pretended it's not even going on. So the fact that in spite of all this, the demonization and the ignoring that we still, we have hundreds of people coming to every one of these Nullify Now events around the country. What we're talking about here are ideas that are eminently American, but which have fallen down the Orwellian memory hole. They're just down there, way, way, way down. And our overlords sort of assumed that we would never find them again. How is this happening? How is this getting out there? How are we getting around the gatekeepers of opinion? The best part of Nullification, to me, is precisely that it involves thinking outside this box. That's what is best about it. Thinking inside the box is what got our country to where it is now. So maybe we have to think differently. We have got to get people in the habit of thinking in new and unapproved ways, and nullification does that. That's an end in itself. So what's the point of this? It's really pretty simple. The Constitution is not about political parties. It's not about political ideologies. It's not about political candidates. It's not about politics at all. The Constitution is about liberty. It's about limiting the federal government to certain enumerated powers so we can deal with the most difficult, the most divisive, the most problematic issues where they belong, close to home, in our states. It's, it's going to be a, a tough road because before we can have a lot of successes with it, we have to persuade, we have to change public opinion, we have to persuade people that what we're doing is legitimate, it's morally legitimate, constitutionally legitimate, historically legitimate, that you know what they've been taught in seventh grade really is untrue, that federal supremacy is the way it's all supposed to work. We have to challenge that version of events. And if people come to have a skepticism of that version of events and begin to see that our position has justice on its side, well then, once we've had this shift in public opinion, then I think we can expect some victories. Welcome to the Constitutional Resistance. The purpose of America is liberty. Whenever any form of government, even this one, 
because it becomes abusive of that purpose. And it is our right and our duty to throw it off. We need to quit calling them federal laws. They are unconstitutional federal actions. They don't rise to the level of law. Stop asking for permission where none is required. When our founding fathers signed the Declaration of Independence, they said we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And today there's too many people that don't want to get involved in the campaigning process. Listen, you can't count on the wrong person to do the right thing. It's not enough just to get out there and yell and have rallies. You got to get out there and get involved. Who's responsible to stand for freedom? Well, first of all, it's every citizen. Secondly, it's every local official. Your county attorney, your county commissioners, and absolutely your sheriff. He's the only elected law enforcement officer in your county and in this country. Therefore, he reports directly to the power source, the people. We have got to have judges and law enforcement officials and legislators who will say that unconstitutional federal action is null and void and will be of no effect in this state. Every political controversy resolves down to one question, you and what army? And so we have to muster that army that's going to get the politicians to want to be leaders, to want to take up this cause. I don't know if we can save the republic, but the states and the people are still sovereign. So remind yourself, and reaffirming your own head, the purpose of this country and the purpose of, of our former government, it's for freedom not power. If we go back to that bedrock and to stand on the rock of the Declaration of Independence and our Bill of Rights and our Constitution, then we can weather any storm. If we abandon it, then we'll be lost. Thomas Paine, when he first came to America, he said, when my country into which I had just set my foot was set on fire about my ears, it was time to stir. In other words, what he's saying is if you're not getting involved, if you're comfortable with what you're doing, you're not doing enough. Because sacrifice is relative. And it's time to go to work because there's a country to save and there's a liberty to secure. In other words, it's all in our own hands. We have it in our own hands to break free of these shackles. For as Lord Byron said, who would be free themselves must strike the blow. the advances of force and aggression and leave to your children the promise of something more as God is my witness I'll be asleep no more well freedom's the answer so what is the question resist the advances of force and aggression and leave
Give me liberty, or give me death. 